you guys have your Bibles, open up Second Chronicles 6. You can come right up here, John. That's exactly where I'm going. <laughs> There's always room in this row. If you want to get I don't know why it is. If you want to get in the front, you've got to come late. That's the rule, huh? <laughs> Second Chronicles chapter 6. You guys, as we've been looking at it, we're coming to uh, the, the prayer of dedication of Solomon as the, the temple is finished. And um, Solomon stands before the people. All the pieces are in place. The ark has been laid. And uh, we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 12. In verse 12, listen to what happens. It says, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. I always like that. Well, when I first... Uh, kind of got involved with Calvary chapels. They were the weird people who raised their hands. You know, I, I never was in, involved with the other weird people who raised their hands in other places. I know there's others, but I come into Calvary Chapel and, and, and they'd sing songs and people would be raising their hands up in worship and just praising God. And, and uh, I wouldn't do it. That's just dumb. Why should you raise your hands? People... People might think you're trying to think too highly of yourself or one thing or another. But as I, as I grew and as I drew nearer to the Lord, um, I actually started to care a little less about that. I think that still is a, is a factor. But I, I cared a little less about that and I cared more about how does my worship look to God instead of how does my worship look to the person beside me or behind me or around me. And... You know, things kind of, I don't know, began to change that day. Solomon's standing in front of everybody. He's the king. He's, he's the guy everybody's supposed to look up to, everybody's supposed to respect. You know, when Solomon became king, there was a little bit of a ruckus. He had a brother that tried to circumvent his rule. There was, uh, um, if you, if you read it in First Kings, it kind of looks to me like uh, uh, scenes out of uh, one of the Godfather movies. Not that i ever seen them, but I heard about them. <laughs> I don't know if you're supposed to lie in church. So, okay, maybe I did see them. But the point being that there's this really radical, um, I don't know, a bunch of fighting and killing and stuff that takes place right at the beginning of Solomon's reign. And, and you could begin to understand why Solomon would be uptight. Why Solomon would be like, man, why does... I don't know if I can lead these people. You know, I've already had this revolution. I had to be kind of swooped into to taking the crown before my dad even died. There's all this stuff going on around him. People are telling him what to do, how they, he should do it. So I can imagine how Solomon was when the Lord came to him and said, Solomon, what do you need? I think he's a little stressed out. Here he's several years down the line. He's built the temple. The temple's ready. And it's kind of cool because you get to see, at least at this point in Solomon's life, this, this heart of desiring to well, not be uptight about how everybody saw him worship God. He's standing up. Everybody's looking at him. Everybody's wanting to know, well, what's... What Solomon got up his sleeve, you know, the temple's ready. Remember we saw the glory, the cloud come down into the temple. Solomon turns around, raises his hands. You ever done that to pray? It was one thing to do it to sing a song, but it's a whole other thing 
to stand up, lift up your hands and pray. But that's what, that's what Solomon does. And, you know, a lot of times people, people will wonder what the purpose is. All throughout scriptures you see the lifting up of holy hands. The scripture talks about all through the Psalms. You know, it's not something to get uptight about, but what was it for? It's like a child lifting his hands to his father saying, Dad, Daddy, when, when our children are little, we don't think nothing of them running over to us when they want us to pick them up and lifting up their hands to us, right? It's the exact same picture that we see in Scripture as, as Solomon begins his prayer. And look at this prayer of dedication that he lays out. It says, uh, Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and he set it in the midst of the court and he stood on it. So he's standing there. I want you to get the picture. Arms raised, and then look. He knelt down on his knees before all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. That's a pretty incredible posture of worship. To, to take that, that point at leadership and say, you know, he's the only guy that didn't have to bow a knee to anybody. Right? You know, he was the king. Everybody else was used to kneeling. Somebody had to kneel to him all the time. But here he turns around and shows who it is that, that he is uh, in service to. He kneels, takes a position of humility, raises his hands like a child to his father in an attitude of prayer. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or earth like you. No God in heaven or earth like you. See that next phrase? Who keep your covenant and mercy. Remember I've talked to you about that word keep. It's kind of an interesting word. Um, the idea is treasure. And covenant and mercy uh, follows along the Hebrew word chesed, which is a word that speaks of uh, loyal love, faithfulness, uh, willingness to keep promises no matter what. So when we look at this, who keep your chesed, your covenantal love, your faithfulness, your loyalty, that keep means he treasures it. That God treasures the opportunity to keep His promises for you. That He treasures the opportunity to continue to love you and I. To keep His promises, His covenants. To have mercy on us. He treasures it. So we kind of got to get that idea. Because in Scripture, when we look at those phrases where it says uh, of believers, that if you love the Lord your God, you will keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome same phrasing now i'm not saying it doesn't mean obedience it does of course but the word speaks of treasure that the things god asks us to do is a treasure to us it's not a burden it's not a burden to us love always does more than the law requires the law requires a lot of things right but when we love our kids nobody has to tell us we're supposed to feed them clothe them and take care of them right there's laws that say you have to but because we love them we don't need the law right that that law is not burdensome it's something we get to do it's the same word used here as god looks at his covenant his promise the things he's doing and working in people's lives it's a treasure to the lord he says that, that you keep your covenant and mercy with your servants 
who walk before you with all their heart. You see that phrase, all their heart? You should do a, a, a study throughout the Old Testament and look for that phrase. What God is looking for in us is a united heart, not a divided heart. A united heart means all my heart is going in one direction, right? Now, one of the things that's going to be a problem for Solomon later on in his life is a divided heart. His heart becomes divided because of all the wives and all the gold and all the power he has. His heart gets divided. But look what the Lord says. He says that God treasures the ability to keep His promises and mercies with the people who walk before Him with all their heart. The united heart. When we say we have a relationship with God, and we talk about, because people, um, you know, always, I don't know, makes me a little leery when somebody says, I'm not very religious, or they throw the religion word around, because re- the word religion means to bind up, to, to develop a set of rules by which or through which you are bound to try to attain to reach some level of holiness. The relationship's not about that. A relationship is saying to God, just like I say to my wife, she has all my heart. How, how comforting is it as a wife if the husband says, well, you know, you got a quarter of my heart. I'll give you a little. I, you know, I got, I got some other interests out there. So you get the majority. Let's just say that. You can have the majority of my heart, but I still have... It's not very comforting, right? God doesn't want less. He wants it all. United, undivided heart. That was the unique thing about David. Now, having a united and undivided heart has nothing to do with my performance or my uh, ability to sin or not sin. It has everything to do with my willingness or treasuring the Lord, that He's my treasure, that He is that thing with which I want to lay hold of with both hands, that He becomes that primary passion in our life. So that's what He's saying. Look, He treasures keeping His promises to those who are of an undivided heart toward Him. He goes on, You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. When you look at that, here's what you see. You see, he speaks of the promise that God gave to David. I look at that as a past grace, okay? Past grace, he had made a promise in the past that God said he would fulfill. Now, in present grace for Solomon. Solomon saying, and you kept your word today. Here I am, and I built the house you said I would build, and I'm ruling the nation you said I would rule. Just as there is a past grace, past examples of God's faithfulness, there are present examples of God's faithfulness, and our hope is in the future examples of His faithfulness to us. That He's going to keep the promises that have yet not been fulfilled. So it's important as, that we, that we um, rehearse the things God's done for us in the past. So he says, he, he talks about the promises that God gave to David, and he brings it around to the, to the current time. These you have fulfilled. You spoke with your mouth, you fulfilled it with your hand, as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man Sit before me on the throne of Israel. What's that? Future, right? 
We're looking at past. What was the past grace? A promise God made to David. The present grace, what was that? The fulfillment of that promise in the life of Solomon. And what's he looking forward to is the fulfillment of a future grace. Future, the promise, God's blessing, right? That, that Why I use the word grace is because it is an unmerited favor. It is a promise God made that didn't depend on somebody else. You with me? I will. It's one of the I wills of God. God's promise. So, so he is looking forward to that idea, that future grace, that, that God's going to put a man who will sit on the throne from the family of David, from the line of David forever. Who's that man? Jesus Christ. There will never be another king. He is the true return of the king when Jesus returns. He's the fulfillment of that future promise that Solomon is looking down the line at. Now, for Solomon, I'm sure he's thinking more along the lines of his kids and his grandkids and so forth, that they would continue to be kings, which they do for a period of time. But Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the once and future king. Not going away, he is the one. But look what he says, Only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk uh, in my law as you have walked before me. That's a repeat of God's promise to David. David, you'll never cease to have a king on the throne as long as your kids walk with me like you walked with me. As long as your kids have undivided hearts. Now what leads Israel into trouble is a divided heart, right? They, look, they never stopped worshiping God. They would still come and worship God, but the rest of the week they would worship Baal, and then they worship Molech, and then they'd worship these other gods, because you might as well have that full and open relationship, right? But you see, God's not satisfied with you saying to Him, you're my all in all, but nah, I'm about a third of my heart committed to you. He wants it all. Just like we would in a, in a marital relationship with a spouse. We would want it all. We don't want to share it with somebody else. That's the exact same examples that God gives to the nation of Israel. When He says to them, you're unfaithful to me. You're cheating on me. You're running around with all these other men. And you're not being faithful to me. That's the exact example that God uses throughout First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and throughout the prophets of that attitude of having a divided heart. God wants us to have a, a united heart toward him all of our heart verse 17 and now O lord of israel let your word come true which you have spoken to your servant david but will god indeed dwell with men on earth behold heaven and of the heavens of heavens cannot contain you how much less this temple which i have built so solomon's letting everybody know look god doesn't live in this building his presence is here and it becomes a symbol of his presence in the nation And the idea of praying toward the temple is the idea of saying, I'm looking for your presence. You guys get what I'm saying? So so that the people have a direction to focus on. But Solomon says, we know that you don't live in there because all of the heavens, all of space cannot contain you. God is huge. He's huge. The idea that God somehow fits inside of me. God can't fit inside of me. He's much larger than I am. No matter how much, how large you think I might be. There's, God's bigger than that. He's, he's larger than that. But His presence is with me. Just like His presence was in the temple. 
His presence with us. I will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that what Jesus told us? So His presence is with us in the same way. Verse 19, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry. That Hebrew word is renach. Renach. It's a, it's a lament or a cry of praise. It can be a lament of sorrow, sadness, um, being overwhelmed uh, in, in a negative sense or being overwhelmed in a positive sense. Aren't both true when we pray and when we cry out to God? Aren't there times when we cry out to God we're just overwhelmed because of the oppression or the, the, the pressure of life around us? And aren't there times that we cry out to God in the same way in praise? So he uses the same word that he uses here when he says to, to hear his supplication. Listen to the cry and the prayer your servant is praying before you. That your eyes, he's speaking to God, may be open toward this temple day and night. Toward the place uh, where you said that you would put your name. That concept of the place where you would put your name. The place where the character of God would dwell. The place where the people who wanted to find God would come. God is big. He's not just in that place. That place became a place for the people of Israel to say, when they said, just like us, think of it in the same terms, when they would say, man, I want to get close to God, where would they go? If they felt like, you know, I feel like I've been distant or I just, I just need to go get close to God. Where would they go? They'd go to the temple. They'd gather at the temple to pray. Not because that's the only place God is, but because that was the place God put his name. He said, look, I'm watching here. I'm listening here. And they knew to go there to pray. The same way many people today would go to a church any church, just to get inside a church and say, man, I I just need to pray. It's the same thing. It's not that God inhabits that building or inhabits that place. The attitude is an attitude of the person who's seeking the Lord, right? If someone was to say, man, I'm just really, I'm trying to feel this and I'm trying to find the Lord and they come to church, I'd be more apt to believe him or her than if, I was hanging out in a bar and some guy said, yeah, you know, I've been really seeking for the Lord. But to me, great example of lip service or at least an attitude of heart that says, I'm going where I think I can, I can connect with him. You get what I'm, what I'm saying? So that kind of becomes the attitude for the temple. He's saying, look, this is the place where your name is and that you will hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of the people of Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. That's a big clue to the purpose behind prayer. See, he says, when you hear them when they pray, the very first thing he's asking for is forgiveness. Forgive them. Forgive Forgive when we when we come before you, when we come in that attitude of prayer, when we seek. Look at verse 22. If anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in the temple, then hear from heaven and act. This first one, verses 22 and 23, he gives a prayer for all the broken promises. 
Anybody ever experienced broken promises? Well, I know a whole lot of kids that have experienced broken promises. Many of them from broken homes. Promises dad says, I'm going to be there and go do this. Or mom says, I'm going to come and do this. And they don't come. Or maybe people who you were hoping were going to come through for you and they didn't come through for you. All those broken promises. That's what Solomon's talking about in verse 22 and 23. Look, if somebody makes a promise and they break it, hear from heaven and act. Judge your servants, bringing retribution on the wicked, bringing uh, his way upon his own head, justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. Lord, you take care of the ones who are hurt in the broken promises. That's what he's talking about. The broken vows. The promises that people make that they break. In verse 24, he talks about our defeats. Or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you and return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave them and their fathers. Now, there's been no exile yet, but the exiles, remember, that's who is reading this. Ezra's writing it, the history, rehearsing it. For the exiles who are coming out of Babylon, that means something to them. They've lived in defeat for 70 years. Under rule of Babylon, thinking about, wow, how did we get here? What happened? You know, we're in exile. But the, the, the promise in the prayer is that God will hear us even in our defeats. He hears us even in our defeats. But what's the pre- prerequisite? That they come, they return and confess your name. That concept of confessing the name of God is going to come up over and over and over and over and over and over again. And what it means is to accept God's sovereignty in your life. You heard the concept of Jesus being your Lord and Savior? When we baptize people, we ask people all the time, have you asked Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior? There are two different things there. Savior, I'm asking Him to forgive me of my sins and and give me a right relationship where once I was at enmity with God, now I want to be at peace with God. That's wrought through the blood of Jesus Christ. But when I say I want Him to be Lord, I'm saying I want you to be sovereign in my life. I want you sovereign in my life. That's what it means to confess the name of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, what did he say? I will confess you before my Father. It's the same concept. If you confess me that I am Lord, that I'm sovereign, that Paul, when Paul would say, we love the phrase, right? When Paul would say, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means someone who is utterly submitted under the sovereignty of another. A bond slave was a slave by choice who placed themselves in a position of servanthood to another sovereign, someone over them. God is sovereign. That, that I'm confessing His sovereignty. If I'm in rebellion against God, God says, if you find yourself in another place... And, and you're in rebellion against me and your, your, um, attitude is one of, I won't have him to rule over me. Don't suppose that your prayer is going to be answered and God's going to bring you back into the land. 
into that place of rest, into that place of promise. Rebellion against God and confessing God are opposite ends of the spectrum. So to confess the Lord means I place myself under His control. I am yours. Here I am. I'm yours. That's what it means to confess. So he says the first thing, they find themselves, they've sinned, uh, they've, they're in defeat, and they confess, they return and confess your name and pray and make supplication before you in this temple. They come toward, look toward the temple. You'll notice that Daniel does it three times a day during the captivity. They come and they pray, confessing his lordship, asking for forgiveness. They have returned. The attitude is there's been a turn and a change in their life. He says, his prayer, Solomon's prayer is, Lord, hear and forgive. Restore. Repair. Bring them, bring them back. Bring them back. What about if you're in thirst? When the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you. When they pray toward this place, look at the phrase again, and confess your name. The sovereignty of God, the Lordship of God, that He is Lord, and turn from their sin. That's an attitude of repentance, right? Confession, I confess God, and I turn from my sin. Okay, I, I, I have to acknowledge sin. I get asked questions like this all the time. Um, we all struggle with sin, and probably in here, several of us are struggling with different kinds of sin. Struggling with sin is a human condition. Living in rebellion to God in habitual sin is different. Living in habitual sin means I no longer see this sin as wrong. I justify it. I say it's okay and I'm going to do it anyway. It's willful sin and it's a bad place to be. You are now being as far as I'm concerned, defined by your sin. I've always said what I love about um, Celebrate Recovery, because Celebrate Recovery, we define ourselves as a believer in Jesus Christ who struggles. That's different. You get me? I don't care what the sin is you struggle with. If you acknowledge this is sin, this is wrong, God help me, that's different than someone who is, let's say, living together with a, a, a man or a woman and just saying, well, I don't care, you know, God, I'm married in God's eyes. That, you're telling yourself a lie. And the Bible says, no one who is sexually immoral will enter into the kingdom of God. And if you're being defined, if you're choosing your sin, divided heart, my sin, I don't care about God, my sin, I'm just going to justify it. You're a divided heart. I, I, I cannot say with absolute certainty, oh, you're okay, you're saved, you're all good, don't worry about it. That's a bad place to be. You are defining yourself by your sin. But if I turn and I say, I'm struggling, but Lord, I don't want to be this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to be in this place. You guys get what I'm saying, how that's different? Struggling is different than habitually practicing. And so he's saying we got to confess the lordship of God, turn from our sin, and say that's sin, right? Heading in the other direction. Because you have afflicted them. They turn. Then here in heaven, and what's it begin with verse 27? Forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. 
And what is the purpose of it all? That you may teach them the good way in which they ought to walk. See, that's how God teaches us how to walk. Same way I, I teach my kids. It shouldn't be hard for us to understand. How many times when our kids were little do we have to slap the back of their hand and say, don't touch that? No, don't touch that. Usually they're poking their finger in the electrical socket. Or they're, they've, they've somewhere they found a paper clip or they found a little piece of metal and they're trying to jam it in there. And we come up and we slap their hand and we say, no, don't touch that. It's going to hurt you. My, my son, I remember, I think he was like, I don't know. I don't know how old he was. Two or three. He was little. And it did not matter. I slap his hand. Take it away, put it on the table. He'd grab it off the table and try to stick it in it again. Right in front of me. I think I slapped the back of his hand like six times. Finally, I took the piece of metal and I put it as far away from him, much too far for him to ever be able to get it. But the problem is, what I realize in that, I've taken that piece of metal and I put it on top of the fridge and he can't get to it, but in his heart, I have not affected change. There's no change. Because if I put that metal where he could grab it, he was going after it again. See, God does things in our life to affect change in here. And that change needs to occur in here for us to be in that place of, of true repentance. That's why God would close up the heavens and it wouldn't rain. And to me, in my life, that just speaks of thirstiness. You ever been thirsty? Like, man, I just would like a really big, long drink of water. Nothing like cold water. Even though I drink monsters, I do like to drink water too. Had long, a hot day. I don't want that. If I'm out humping in the hills, I don't want that stupid, I want water. Cool water. When we're thirsty in our souls, there's, there's issue that's come into our life. Just like the water didn't come in the, in the land, the, the rain is not falling in us. We sing a song, rain, right? We, we, talk, we, we talk about calling down the rain and the power of the Holy Spirit in our life and His blessing and His anointing and all that stuff. But when that's not there, you know what's wrong. What's wrong? I don't know exactly what's wrong, but what I do know is when it didn't rain in Israel, the people were to go to the place where they knew they could pray to God and they were to humble themselves and pray, repent, turn from the sins that God might reveal in their heart and receive that fresh anointing, that rain. Same thing. It's what we're looking forward to in a couple weeks with the solemn assembly. Well, he goes on and says, now, when there is famine, now we talk about thirsty, now we're going to talk about hunger and sickness. When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all. Did you see that? Whatever prayer or supplication is made by anyone or by all. I think that's fulfilled in the life of Daniel. 
Because Daniel, even as one solitary figure, was praying and repenting of the people's sins and calling on the name of God that the exile might end. Here he says, whatever's happening, whether one or everyone, somebody coming or all of Israel coming, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief and spreads out his hands to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and what's it begin with? Forgive. 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 Most of the time we come before the Lord and we pray and we come to Him. Maybe we come to Him with praise or maybe we come to Him with our uh, supplications, our requests. But here what I see at the, 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 the dedication of the temple is an attitude of constantly coming to be right with the Lord. <laughs> to be right with Him. That's the most important thing. Do you know that? Because it don't matter what cancer is doing to your body if you're not right with the Lord. It doesn't matter what drugs are doing to your body if you're not right with the Lord. It doesn't matter whether or not you get the house or the new job or your financial woes are taken care of if you're not right with the Lord. That's the most important thing. The most important part. That I'm in a right standing with Him. That I'm not walking around in unconfessed sin, but that I'm willing freely, openly to confess. Why hold it back? Why pretend that there's not some issue in my life? When all that's necessary is for one or all, whoever recognizes their burden and their issues to come before the Lord in an attitude of prayer, to come before Him and pray. And He will hear from His dwelling place and forgive. And then the next part, and give to everyone according to all His ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of men. Does God know your heart? Probably one of my favorite verses in the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 37, 4. Um, Delight yourselves in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Do you know God knows your heart? You ever thought you knew what you wanted? Have you ever thought you knew what you wanted and got what you thought you wanted and only to find out that's not what you really wanted? That's a tongue tangler. But nonetheless, sometimes I don't even know what I want. Sometimes I come home and I'm cranky and I'm, I know that I'm being a butthead and Kathy will say to me, what is wrong with you? And if I can sit there and I can honestly say, did I just say that in church? It's okay. And I can honestly say, I don't know. I don't know. I am in a sour place. I don't know. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I'm, maybe I'm tired. I don't know. I don't know. I know I'm being ornery. But I'm, I don't necessarily know why. Who knows my heart? God does. The Bible tells in Jeremiah, the heart is desperately and deceitfully wicked. And it says, who can know it? But the very next part of that verse says, the Lord knows your heart. Your heart's not hidden from Him. So what I love about this section, look, you come, you pray, you lay out your burdens, you spread out your hands. And what's he say? He says he forgives and he gives to everyone according to all his ways, whose hearts you know. He gives that thing, that peace, that thing that you're really hungry for, that thing that you don't understand or you don't know. How did David say it? He said, Lord, search me. 
Try me. Know me. And if there's any wicked way in me, lead me in the path everlasting. Help me. That's an attitude of coming to the Lord in humility and saying, God, if my life is sideways, there's something upside down, something twisted, something wrong. Show it to me. Reveal it to me. And God knows your heart. He'll do it. You might not like what he shows you. But he'll show you. Once he shows us, then it's on us, right? Will you let it go? Will you confess it? Will you put it out? Will you do what what God is asking? Follow the directions that God is giving? Well, what's the purpose of it all? Verse 31. That he or that they may fear you. Now, a lot of times we hear people talking about the fear of God. So let me make it super simple for you. Um, you, you hear people say, well, that, that fear of God is a, is a reverence or an awe. That's absolutely true. Fear of God is a reverence or an awe. But that word is no different than the word that means terror, shake, quake, hide under a desk, freak out. It's the same word. Same word. And one of the first things it talks about is people are, are seeking, look, as they're coming to Him and they're, they're asking for forgiveness and they're, and they're praying that God would know their heart, reveal those issues of their heart. For what purpose? That they may fear you. The reason people live in habitual sin today is because there is no fear of the Lord. If you, know, if you saw God, trust me. If you saw Him, and then the next day had the opportunity to, to, to have or indulge in whatever that sin was, you would not be anywhere near it. Because you have the fear of the Lord. What's the proverb say? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. The beginning. <laughs> That's where you start. The starting point of developing wisdom in our walk with God is to learn to fear Him. Now, we today lose the sense of the word reverence and awe. Because reverence and awe carry that that idea not only of fear, but respect and honor for something or someone much greater than yourself. And that's the proper attitude. But when, when people say, well, fear doesn't mean the quaking and the shaking, well, you show me. Anytime you want to, the guy who saw God in the Bible and didn't do the quaking and the shaking stuff. Well, they did it, huh? Oh, woe is me. Because it's, he's awesome. He, he's awesome. So what we want God to work in our life and in our heart is to teach us the fear of the Lord. Because then I won't stay in habitual sin. I can't stay in it if I understand, have an understanding of how God feels about that sin. Right? Well, for example, do you, you guys have ever known someone whose who's, uh, family member or child was killed in uh, uh, a drunk driving accident? I happen to have uh, s- some people that I knew whose child was killed in an accident with a drunk driver. You know, they were pretty offended, those people, any time anybody wanted to drink. They were pretty offended by it. Because 
they thought, don't you know how we feel about this? I mean, our, our little child was killed. And you want to just come over and drink? Now, if we can understand the concept in a human relationship, how much greater is the view of that sin to a holy and just God whose Son was crucified for us? I'd say about infinitely greater. Humongous. And that's how God sees sin. That's the whole point of having that attitude of the fear of God, that that right standing. What is it that the fear of God does in verse 31? It helps us to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. It enables us to walk the walk that God is asking us to walk. Because we recognize how God views that sin. We recognize how God sees that issue in our life. And so as a result, it it alters the way that I'm going to walk. The things that I'm going to do. Verse 32, moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for the sake of your great name, and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray in this temple then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you that all people of the earth may know your name and fear you so solomon's praying for people who aren't jews right gentiles being saved He's praying that, that when they hear, when they come, and he defines who the foreigner is. The foreigner, he, he defines as all the peoples of the earth. So it's everybody who's not a Jew. That's who he's talking about. When they pray, when they call on your name, that they may know your name and fear you. That they would have that relationship with them. What, is it different than the relationship with Israel? No. Look at what it says. That they may know your name and fear you just as your people Israel. Or in the same way that Israel does, that they would know. And that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. This is a place where we go to connect with God. Verse 34, he talks about the battles in life. When your people go out to battle against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city which you have chosen in the temple which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. Now, no longer do we see the result, the forgiveness of sin. Now what we see as a result is maintain their cause. Give them strength for the journey. Give them the endurance that they need. Uh, uh, fill them with what's necessary for the battle they face. God gives us what we need for the battle we face. More often than not, He does not take the battle away. But He will provide strength for the day. So the point, for the battles, we come to the Lord in prayer and He answers that prayer. Verse 36, For our failures, when they sin against you. By the way, for those of you who think, I don't do that. For there is no one who does not sin. (laughs) That's the next part of that sentence. So when they sin against you, when we fail, when we falter, when we fall, and you become angry with them and you deliver them to the enemy, 
and they take them captive to a land far or near. It's no different today. We, we read these scriptures and we think somehow we're in a different place. Look, when we find ourselves in a place of sin, we get delivered to the enemy. We get delivered into bondage. Sometimes it's bondage to that sin. Sometimes it's bondage in the area that we live in. Whatever, we are then exiles. We're separated from God in a place we didn't want to be. And we look around and we say, how did I get here? It's the same thing. They actually got taken out of their homes and took someplace else. But this very thing can happen to us in our homes. We can find ourselves in bondage because of a failure, because of sin in our life. He says, yet when they come to themselves in the land which they were carried captive and repent, and they make supplication, they make a request, they ask you, they, they, they pray to you in the land of their captivity. So they're not at the temple. They're still in the pit. They're still in the bog. They're still in the mud. Look, repentance is an attitude, not performance. Do you get what I'm saying? Repentance is an attitude. We see it in the, in the, in the son who wished his dad was dead, the prodigal son. And he finds himself in a foreign land. When did he repent? When he stood before his father and said the words? He repented the minute he was in the pig's pen and he said, the slaves in my father's house have it better than this. They repent in the land they're in. Sometimes we re- guys repent still taking drugs. But there's a change of attitude has begun. A turn in their heart toward the Lord. That repentance, when they pray, when they call out and they say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and committed wickedness. Lord, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to go through this anymore. Here I am with this needle in my arm. And I don't want to be here. And I don't want to live like this. And I don't want to be in this place. And he calls out to the Lord, when they return to you with, what's that phrase? What's the phrase? Because it's so important, all their heart. I can't be a divided heart. God will not share your heart with any other. That's why Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father and brother and sister and and children, every other earthly relationship looks like hate compared to the love you have for me. You're not fit. You're sharing your heart. He wants all of it. All of it. Is it possible to worship your children? Absolutely. Is it possible that they can be an idol in your life? For sure. No question. Is it possible that my marriage could be an idol in my life? Absolutely possible. Jesus in Matthew, or in Luke, I think it's in Luke. Jesus in Luke, he tells a parable and he says, the, 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 the man, this, this wealthy landowner was planning a wedding feast and he invited all these people to come. And he said, it's ready, come. And they, they had three excuses. You remember what their excuses were? One excuse was, I just bought a house. And I can't come. Please excuse me. The third guy said, I just bought a team of oxen. Please excuse me. The third guy, I just got married. Please excuse me. Now, Jesus said, none of those people are coming to the feast. None of those people are coming to the feast. 
undivided heart is a big deal. It is a big issue. God wants it all. He wants it all. You say, oh, I can't, I can't. Here's the problem. Let me tell you what the problem is. The problem is you're thinking of your love as though it's in this cup. And if I give all that's in this cup to God, I won't have anything to give anybody else. And that is faulty logic. Because the Bible says, God says, you give it all to me. And I'll pour the love of God out in your life that you can't contain. So if you want to look at it properly, the only way you can truly love your children and your wife or husband and your mother and father and anyone else is if you love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then the love of God flows out of your life to them. Now, it's a right relationship. If I short-circuit that, I'm doing the same thing Jesus said. If you seek to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you try to hold on and not let go, it's like what happens when we try to hold water in our hands. It doesn't matter how tight you squeeze, water's coming out everywhere. So Jesus says, stop trying to hold on to it and give it to me. Just give it all to me. Give it all. And I'll give back to you so much you can't hold it. Scriptures talk about him pouring out such a blessing that you can't contain. Romans chapter 5, we talked about it on Sunday, says that the love of God is poured out in your life by the Holy Spirit. That God showers you with so much love into your life that you can't help but love the people around you. That's why Jesus said, they'll know you're mine because of the way you love each other. Not because you work it up with a cup of love that you have. Let's face it. The love we got to give to God is is insufficient. The love we have to give to our children is insufficient. The love I have to give to my spouse is insufficient. You remember Peter? Jesus came to Peter after the the denial. Everybody remember the story? Peter's out fishing. He sees Jesus. He dives in, swims to the shore. Jesus makes breakfast for them all. They have this great catch of fish they catch. And they're sitting down and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you agapeo me more than all this? More than the boats and more than the fishing and more than the fish you caught? Do you love me more than all that? You remember what Peter said? Yes, Lord, you know I phileo. Phileo is a substandard love of friendship. Agapeo is self-sacrificing love, the love of God. Didn't Jesus just sacrifice himself for Peter? That's God's love. That's unbelievable 1 Corinthians 13 love, right? But Peter couldn't get there. I phileo. But, but you know that Jesus didn't condemn him? What did he say? Feed my lambs. Then he asked him again, Peter, do you agapeo? And Peter said, Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo. Then tend my sheep. And the third time, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you phileo? 
And the Bible says Peter was stricken in his heart because the third time God came to him. Do you truly, Peter, give me your cup, your love, what you have, what you're able to do? Do you give it to me? Oh, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo. Then feed my sheep. When Peter gave all that he had to the Lord, God took all that he had and made it greater. Right? When the little boy brought his lunch to the Lord, how, was it enough to feed 5,000 people? It was enough in God's hands, but if he, that little boy walked around with that lunch, it had been gone in a couple of seconds. Just like the love, just like our abilities, just like everything we bring to the table, it's not enough. But when we surrender it all to Jesus, He takes it and makes more, right? He makes more strength, more boldness, more understanding, more wisdom, more knowledge, more power, more love. But when we give it to Him, the little boy didn't bring the lunch to Jesus and say, here, but I'm keeping that piece of bread just in case this doesn't work out. Right? How much of the lunch did He give? All of it. How much does God want? All of it. How much of your life does He want? All of it. If you try to hold some back, it's not going to work. You've got to give it all away. Jesus told us it's going to be the freakiest thing you ever think. But if you give your life away, you'll find it. Why? Because if I give it to Him, He's going to make it bigger and better and pour it back out on me. It's not a bad deal. We're doing... Conditioning with the boys of football. Boys of football don't like conditioning. I don't care who they are. They don't like it. If they told you they liked it, they lied. They don't like it. And we're sitting there, and they're they're having to beat certain times of some of the exercises we're doing. And so we tell the guys, this one team just lost. And we say, okay, you owe us one gasser, and they don't like to do gasser, but you got one gasser to do. But I tell you what, if you win this time, you want to do double or nothing? And the guys are like, they think we're trying to rip them off somehow. And they're like, no. Really? Yeah, no, we don't want double or nothing. So I had to explain it to them. What's double of one? Two. How many will you have to run if you lose? Two. And how many will you have to run if you win? Well, we'd still have to run one. Unless you take double or nothing. It's a no-lose situation right now. Later on, it'll be a lose situation. If you got like four gassers and I say double or nothing, no, that may be something to think about. But if you only got one, and you're going to do it again anyway, take the deal. Take the deal. The deal God gives us is infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. The love that He wants and He bestows, that He wants to pour out infinitely greater. We want that. We want that love. We want the understanding. We want to turn with all our heart. And then look, He adds a phrase in verse 38. When they return to you with all their heart and all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they've been carried captive, and they pray toward their land, which you gave to the fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple that I have built, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. 
all these prayers about having a right relationship with God. I just love that it's Solomon who gives it. That prayer of dedication. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open. Let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, to your resting place. You and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. And let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away from the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. And when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering, the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests couldn't enter the house of God because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When he got done praying, God showed up. Have you ever had that happen? I've had that happen. Once that has occurred in your life, you will spend the rest of your life clamoring for it again. Unfortunately, we're still people. And so we still will allow things to separate us from that. But that's what God wants to pour out in your life every single day. Fire came down, filled up the temple people all see it look what occurs we got just a couple of minutes but we'll look when all the children of israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the lord on the temple they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the lord immediately the what was the response when god showed up praise humility they are on their face glorifying god for he is good And His mercy endures forever. His chesed. His loyal love. His love unchanging. The love with which He loves us all. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. So I want you to see, they pray. God shows up, fire. Crazy that the sacrifices are taken up. The people erupt into praise. And the king and all the people begin to offer sacrifices. They just start sacrificing things to the Lord. They just start giving things over. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls, 120,000 sheep. You know what I have written next to that? Extravagant worship. Now, if you read the commentaries, the commentaries will tell you this must be a hyperbole because there's no way they could have sacrificed that many. I don't know. Here's the reality. It doesn't change. Extravagant worship is taking place and incredible sacrifices are going on. In fact, the Scripture says they didn't have enough altars, so they added some. Look, it says, And the priests attended to the service of Levites to their instruments of music, which King David had made for the praise of the Lord, saying, His mercy endures forever. His said, His love, whenever David offered praise by their ministry, the priests are blowing the trumpets opposite them, while all of Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle court that was in the front of the house of the Lord, for there he had burnt offerings and the fat of peace offerings. And because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. So they, they had so many offerings going on, they couldn't do it all, so they added more altars. 
So they could keep offering, so they could keep sacrificing, so they could keep giving to the Lord, so they could keep laying things down, so they could keep honoring Him, so that this was perpetual. It was perpetual. They could not give enough. They could not do enough. The day was not, the day was too short. They, they ran out of light. They ran out of time. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days. Isn't that cool? The worship service went for seven days. This is during the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's a feast period during for Israel anyway, and it happens to be a seven-day feast. Anyhow, they just keep going. He keeps the feast. He kept the feast seven days, and all of Israel with him. Did, did that say most of Israel? Does it say some of Israel? How many did it say? All of Israel. All of Israel's out there, seven days. A very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. So there's a ton of people. Get the idea? They don't all fit. They're overflowing down the side of the mountain in Jerusalem. They're, they're all the way to the brook of Egypt. He goes on and says, <coughs> On the eighth day they held a sacred assembly. Oh, I've heard that phrase somewhere before. Sacred assembly. Oh, we're going to do that. They held the sacred assembly, assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. So on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for his servant David. They left after seven days of worshiping, glorying, praising, sacrificing, full of joy. Full of joy they left. Why? Because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And in Him, an incredible joy. And if I'm holy, completely, utterly, joy is going to come through. It's going to resonate in my life. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, the king's house. Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house. Well, that's probably a good place to stop because I don't know how long I'll keep going. But look at that next verse. That night, the Lord appeared to Solomon again. What for? He's going to answer all those prayers. All the prayers he prayed at the dedication, all the questions that he had, God's got an answer for him. God shows up. God answers prayer. God moves in might and power, and he still does it now to a people who come to him with all their heart, undivided, wholly committed says he is near to those who are of a contrite spirit. You know what contrite is? Repentant. He is near to those of a broken heart. Same attitude. Why is the heart broke? Because the spirit is contrite. Why is the spirit contrite? Because I 
I have offended the God of the universe. The Lord is near to those ready to answer, ready to answer, ready to ready to fulfill all those things that we're looking for from Him. Amen?